0: Oh, good. All right, you're there, you're there, you're there. You're doing your thing. You ready? I'm ready. And now, coming to you live from the Waldorf room, high atop the legendary Kud Street, Hotel 6, it's the Kud Street Podcast with Garrett Gay Wolf and Jonathan Strand.
1: You're work. just getting out of control. You're
0: out of control. You're out of control. You're, you're, you're
1: pandering <laughs> to the audience.
0: <laughs> I am. All couple hundred of them. Hi, hi audience. I hope you don't feel pandered to. <laughs> And now a little number from yesteryear. <laughs> hey, look, consider this. I didn't write that, Gary. Oh, yeah, there's well, there's that. Okay, <laughs> fine. That was meant to be a joke between mm-hmm. the two
1: Twitter, but that's
0: fine. It's now public. That's okay. <laughs> well, um, no, it's now established. I mean, we can hardly go back to good morning now after that, can we?
1: Uh, no, we can't. I think we've got, we've got a new tradition here.
0: I just thought of this afternoon. Yeah. I discovered I was floating
1: around the uh, Internet science fiction database, which we all use all the time. Sure. Uh, together, and discovered that um, at, at the at the page every day it lists who was born and who died on this day. hmm And two interesting anniversaries are occurring on well, what is still this day for me? Yeah. You uh, should clarify this on, for for me. This is still May 19th, um, whereas for me it's May the 20th. Right. Well, uh, if I'm not mistaken, uh, today is two anniversaries. One that most people won't recognize is the 200th anniversary of the birth of Lady Charlotte Guest.
0: Okay, Gary, thanks for making me feel adequate. Why does that matter? I mean, I'm sure she was lovely, but what's the big deal? Uh, She, as far as I know,
1: did the first English translation of the Mabinogian, which basically introduced the whole matter of the Mabinogian into modern fantasy Literature. That's a big deal. And if we, without that, you know, we wouldn't have had Evangeline Walton. Um, wait, 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 wait. Okay. Or Lloyd I mean, Alexander, or. Lloyd Alexander, I mean, there's. Uh, yeah. And, and, and so she was a significant figure in the history of fantasy. 200th yeah. anniversaries are not minor
0: things. No, they're not.
1: So, And the other thing which was equally interesting, if I'm not mistaken, is that this is the 25th anniversary of the death of Alice Sheldon.
0: Indeed. Indeed it is. Uh, and, uh, not missing out much coinciding with her being um, entered into the SF Hall of Fame.
1: Yes, as a matter of fact. Uh, that could very well be part of it I
0: and in, and in fact now that I think about it I, I went through a period in my life where particularly where I was talking to a lot of publishers about projects and stuff and trying to come up come up with things and the twenty fifth uh, a tick tree twenty fifth anniversary is a hell of a thing and in fact, looking at the same information because I looked it up f- to all you publishers out there we're only three years away from the t- the tip tree centenary Wow that's true I guess Because she was born in nineteen fifteen mm-hmm Hence, she could do all that trekking through the deepest darkest, Afri- deepest, darkest Africa when it was sort of still what white people in a colonial mode looked on as being white deepest, darkest Africa as, a, as opposed to what African people probably thought was home. Um, so, yeah. Do you, think that, do you think the tip tree looms larger now than she did
1: 25 years ago when she died?
0: Yes, I do. Uh, I think, and I'm sure someone who lived through it more immediately and by more immediately i mean being more immediately involved like david hartwell might have a different perspective but the way i look at it is she came out of the blue or uh, uh, under the tip tree byline and between the uh, the end of the 60s and into the mid 70s was enormous and Mm. then by the time you get to like 1985 or so when things like uh bite beautiful i think it was was coming out and um you know her final novel uh uh, the Starry Rift, I think it was, mm-hmm. came out. I think she was well-established, but no longer quite so surprisingly brilliant to people. Um, and then there's like a quiescent period in her reputa- reputation. Then Wishcon pick up the Tiptree Awards, other bits and pieces happen. The the big thing, of course, as you you would point out, would be the, the Phillips biography. And mm-hmm. now I think she's this enormous t- you know, um, touchstone in the science fiction field generally. And then, particularly, I would imagine, in feminist science fiction, probably only a step, a step, if a step below Le Guin, you know, as the most important, influential female science fiction writer of the 20th century.
1: I think you're probably right in terms of her fiction, in terms of overall influence. I don't know where we can keep keep coming back to Joanna Ross because of the importance of her critical work and her, um, you know. Uh, reviews as well as her fiction. Mm. But I, See,
0: think, uh, I think the difference, though, is, uh, though it's starting to change, I think the difference is Tiptree is more widely read now. That may be true. That may th- be th- true. Than Russ is. Uh, I mean, not, not the least because, with the exception of probably the female man and something else, almost all of her work is either out of print or any from very small academic presses. I mean, there was, of course, as you and I both know and have talked about on the podcast before, the... Uh, Pro, you know, the, the planned project to do her complete short fiction, Russ's complete short fiction, which hit a snag and at the moment isn't happening, but might happen, who knows. Um, and that's very unfortunate, because I think it would help b- draw more attention back to to her, her writing, her fiction writing. Uh, I, I guess, and I'm not sure how I feel about this, I don't have a clear opinion, I'd have to go back and read and think about it, whether I think her critical work ultimately is more influential than her fiction, uh, there's no doubt that both elements of her work are are highly influential, but I'm not sure which one is more.
1: Well, I mean, you have to talk about who you're who, who's being influenced. I mean, sure. Among I academics and among um, among academics who are interested in the feminist criticism or feminist scholarship of science fiction, she mm-hmm. was essential. Le Guin was writing good essays at the same time, uh, but but Russ was writing with a kind of uh, sharpness and uh, clarity that, uh, I'm not, I'm not going to say more so than Le Guin, mm. I, guess, I guess Le Guin was more interested in the broader issues of storytelling and narrative and focus and that sort of thing, and um, Russ was the one who wrote the classic essay uh, Amor Vincent uh, Feminum, was that the title of it? The so. subtitle, which was The Battle of the Sexes in Science Fiction. Yeah. And that just became a touchstone for all of us of my generation who grew up uh, wanting to write criticism and thinking, well, for one thing, uh, this is getting into a slightly off the subject, but why not? Um, that you could actually write criticism gracefully, that that's one of the things that, uh, you know, you, you, you would see in the best, uh, writer critics of that era. And she, and at the time she was writing, uh, just uh, budgers was still writing yes. criticism and it was the same kind of sharpness. Sometimes, uh, Sometimes anger, in, in Budrus's case, maybe a couple of times misplaced anger, <clears throat> but with a kind of clarity and, and, and precision that uh, very few academics were writing like that at that point. Mm. Uh, and so the idea that she became an influence in <clears throat> in, in the critical field uh, is not to be ignored. Her no. influence as a fiction writer is certainly uh, there and, and, and established. Tetri didn't write a lot of nonfiction, as far as, far as I recall.
0: Not to my recollection either, though I, I mean I may, may be overlooking something. And there's also the question of, in this regard, I mean Tippi's letters, which I which I've never seen, but which I believe are erudite and intelligent and would be fascinating to see. And you know what? She's I'm just looking quickly at the ISFDB because hey, our listeners wouldn't do that themselves. But she did write um, a bunch of introductions and essays and and such over the years. Mm. Dating back to 1946. Really? Yeah. Oh, they come to think of, you're right. There was a lot. I remember coming across the references to a
1: lot of that stuff in um, in Julie Phillips' biography. And mm. I did see a letter from Tiptree once. And I've seen a a, a book with her notations in it from Charles Brown's collections. Mm-hmm. And they were very, well, they were what you'd expect from somebody who was a very incisive, trained observer. I mean, that, that's the sort of thing that fascinated me about her whole career in the Julie Phillips' biographies. Mm. That she was basically a trained intelligence officer, so she picks up things that a lot of people very don't much, pick. very much.
0: So, yes, that, that's an interesting start to the podcast, Gary. Yes, well, maybe it's not, but it's a start. <laughs> no, actually, no, it is. It is, I, 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 and and I think it's actually worth flagging the idea, and we can now officially be helping to flag it that um, the Tiptree Centenary is coming, and they should do something special for that. For that.
1: Yes, and they should have done something special for the. Anniversary of her death as well. But death anniversaries, I guess, don't count as much. I don't know why.
0: Well, also, 25 years is a good, good like, anniversary number. But a centenary is, like, a big deal. It's like, do you know the other centenary that's on this year, Gary? Uh, I No, because I'm not looking at the ISFDB right well, now. Well, nor am I. I just happen to know this one, so ha-ha. Um, yeah. <laughs> see, as, as you would know, listeners, somewhere in the background of this podcast is a game of petty one-upmanship. This also belongs in the bar at your local convention. It's mm. the R.A. Lafferty centenary. Today is? No, this year is. Oh, this year is? Well, yeah. that's... that's okay,
1: okay, that's that's impressive. And Lafferty is something which you and I have both been involved with. Uh, we know that we can see some Lafferty books and stories being reprinted in the fairly near future.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. There's a number of projects that... I mean, I, I, I can officially say nothing but 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 sort of allude sort of to um, a whole bunch of things that are um, coming up. And there, there's a lot of things in the wind which would be announced in the coming three to six months, I guess, which for those of people who love uh, Lafferty's work will, will be, I think, uh, happy news. We should also
1: um, congratulate uh, a friend, uh, Andrew Ferguson, who has been very helpful with the Lafferty material, who who received a fellowship at the University of California, Riverside, and yes. I believe has received an award, but I'm going to really embarrass myself by not remembering what the award was. Is a book collecting award, mm. um, and because he's done so much work with Lafferty. And he is invaluable uh, to uh, to the Locust Foundation in, in, in sourcing some of the Lafferty stories and looking at some of the unpublished He absolutely material. has been. He absolutely he has been. And, and by mentioning him, maybe somebody will link uh, uh, their Twitter feed to something that he will see, and he'll listen to us once in a while. Hi, Andrew.
0: <laughs> you can't bet
1: on that.
0: <laughs> you really, really, really can't bet on that. Um,
1: well, here, there's a footnote to that. And yeah. one of the things, speaking as an academic, when I see a young scholar falling in love with a writer who is as seriously overlooked as Lafferty is, and and finding a kind of mission in that, mm-hmm. uh, I, I think that's very um, very encouraging to me, uh, because I see a lot of younger readers, um, and I've heard this from the editors of the journals in the field, who want to write all their essays about, well, let's <clears throat> be honest, China, Mieville and Neil Gaiman.
0: Oh, that's interesting. I thought they only wanted to write about Philip K. Dick and um, Ursula Le Guin. Oh, they did that. Oh, that's... <laughs>
1: there's there there's a period of there, there are fashions i could i could go through a whole <laughs> fashion history of science fiction criticism yeah because they did not discover philip k dick uh, they discovered philip k dick long after they've been writing about stanislaus Lem mm-hmm. and stanislaus Lem, they were writing about at the same time as they were writing about uh le guin and but, but, and eventually new writers get admitted to that academic pantheon dick uh with with a vengeance, mm-hmm. but I think prior to I'm, I'm not sure of this, but I'm I'm guessing that prior to about the late 60s or early 70s, you would never see an academic article about Dick.
0: No, no, I think that's probably true. And uh, always say Philip K. Please, just for the. Yes. Okay. <laughs> In case people think I'm referring to Dick Lupoff, I suppose. Well, I, a, a friend. Well, not a friend of this podcast, but a friend of these podcasters. Because I, mm-hmm. I don't know whether whether Dick actually listens to the podcast. So oh. I've got another shout out uh, for the podcast, Gary, before we go on to other things, because what okay. our listeners don't know, of course, is that this time out of the box, we actually have innovated. We've copied people who've been doing it for years. So it's new to us. And we have sho- we have show notes, don't we?
1: Oh, did you? Email- <laughs> uh, should I open my email now? I suppose. <laughs> oh, there we are. OK, fine.
0: These, these are, of course, some- the these show notes that you haven't looked at yet. Awesome. OK, don't worry. While you're reading. I will point out that friend of this podcast, James Bradley, who uh, is on Twitter as Ocean of Tongues, last night at the Sydney Writers' Festival was awarded the $15,000 Pascal Prize as Australia's Critic of the Year.
1: That's astonishing.
0: That is amazingly
1: astounding. It's amazingly astounding, and I'm I'm enormously... Just Australian science fiction or Australia in general?
0: Australia's Critic of the Year. Okay. And if I can, Higher country. Yes, if I can quote from the Australian, which is a, a prestigious broadsheet uh, newspaper. They say the prize judges acknowledged Bradley's deep engagement with traditional and emerging media, from broadsheet newspapers to blogs, describing his reviews as postings from the front line of a revolution. They highlighted his work as a critic, but also his interest in underappreciated genres such as speculative fiction and nature writing, and in television and film. Congratulations, um, James. That's I, wonderful. I, I take my hat off to him. He, he last the, the most recent book of his that came out is uh, the Penguin Book of the Ocean, which is a big anthology, fantastic, mm-hmm. spectacular book. He's uh, nice. really interesting, interesting critic, and, and it's been a pleasure getting to know him over the last year or so. And yes, just a big shout out to him. Maybe we should get him on the podcast, and we can talk about stuff. <laughs> We should. Uh, it's, it's it's always a feeling of uh,
1: the fact, I mean, the fact that there's a $15,000 award for a critic itself makes me uh, salivate. But, <laughs> but, but whenever anyone, whenever anyone who likes our field, who is interested in our field and who is supportive of it uh, receives recognition outside our field, I know it seems petty, but it's like that's that's a bigger deal than than one of us getting something from a small convention that we go to all the time. I'm not referring to any specific convention, but you know, it, it, it was thrilling to me, um, even though I didn't know him at the time, that uh, a former guest on our podcast, Michael Durder, won a Pulitzer Prize. Yes,
0: yes. Uh, and and, uh, and an Edgar since we saw him last, wasn't and it? And an Edgar since we saw him for the On Conan Doyle book, which we were talking about. So a um, shout-out to Michael, who probably isn't listening, but if you are, congratulations. Okay, so we have...
1: All kinds of people to celebrate.
0: Let's celebrate the Nebula winners now. Yeah, I know. I mean, they were just announced a couple hours ago. I should tell you that I emerged from sleep bleary and tired this morning at about 7 o'clock. And I picked up my iPad, and they were just about to start announcing the the Nebulas. Uh, Of course, I thought they were just about to start, start, but they are actually just broadcasting slides for about an hour. So I sat there kind of bored and did something else. And then they started, and they had a great ceremony. And I have to say, from my perspective, and I don't know about yours, I was delighted with just about every result. I was <clears throat> I was delighted with every result
1: that I'd read, and I was desi- delighted with every result whose author I knew about. Um, the um, meaning meaning which I have not read Delia Sherman's The Freedom Maze, but I'm familiar with Delia's work. I, <clears throat> I'm very fond of it, and I actually have The Freedom Maze here, which I would love to read. So that's the only one I haven't actually read of the list. I, the rest heard,
0: of yeah sorry
1: the rest of my I'd, I'd, I'd read all the winners and in
0: many cases uh, all the nominees yeah I've, I've read or seen most or all of the nominees in all of the categories mm-hmm. and sort of without sort of completely revisiting them I would say they all of the winners are deserving there may be points where I could have tossed a coin and come up with a mm-hmm. different result but it would have been a coin toss not a oh my goodness and so sort of had a ballot come out of the nebulas which at some points in their history people have looked at and been bemused by shall we say politely gary uh this time they've come out with a really good set of uh, both nominees and results so you know i mean from our good friend connie willis being given the uh, presented with the Grand master award and she, mm-hmm. I, I saw her her acceptance speech which was everything you would expect from connie it was witty mm. it was funny it was perceptive it was touching you know, I think she was deeply moved and she also was able to make up an acronym because unlike almost anybody else in the world she doesn't just have BFFs now she has BFFs who are uh, Grand Masters so she's got BFF GFMs or something which she wanted right. to share with us yeah. uh, <laughs> it was also sort of great to see um, Sifwa acknowledge although it's always a little controversial the Solstice Award to see them acknowledge John Clute and Octavia Butler uh, yes. but uh, I think Butler, frankly, deserves a Grand Master Award, and always have done. Uh, It's just, unfortunately, I guess she she died so young. Uh, They don't give
1: books
0: to... uh... No, they they don't present them posthumously, and that was also very... I think her death was very sudden, is my recollection. And so, yes. And of course, for for John, I mean, who obviously, not only has had a significant positive impact on science fiction, but is notably still alive, and so uh, happily, uh, and so uh, we can celebrate. In fact, maybe we should celebrate his Solstice Award at in Toronto, Gary, somehow. That's a good idea. We should probably do that with John. We um, we could come up with a solstice cocktail and sit and drink them whilst doing a podcast in Toronto.
1: Let's let's start a contest with our listeners as to what the ingredients of a solstice cocktail should be.
0: <laughs> that sounds like a fine plan. Um and- <laughs> I can tell you so well, I have read four of the eight, I think, nominees for the Andre Norton Award. Uh-huh. And I loved The Freedom Maze. Unreservedly, I think it's a brilliant book. Um, the other ones that I'd read, Nedia Akorafor's book, Franny Billingsley's book, and Laney Taylor's books are all very fine. Mm-hmm. Uh, of those four, I think The Freedom Maze might have shaded it just in, in my own reading. So I was really delighted to, to see that, though I would have been also almost equally delighted to see Nnedi win. Um, mm-hmm. I was interested, I didn't even know Neil was, there was, there was no... T- hint on Twitter that Neil was in Washington for um, the the Nebulas but was very happy to see see him pick up the Ray Bradbury Award mm-hmm. or to see Doctor Who really I guess technically because there's the two of them like, um, they, I mean in the short story yeah I mean the, I love the Ken Liu I also would have been very happy just based on my own prejudice to, to, see, to see the E-Lily U win but I think those this were, will those not
1: remove those would have been, been my Top two choices as well.
0: Yeah, actually. yeah. But I, I would be really very happy to see. Well, sorry, no. I'll take a step back. I would expect to see Lily Yu on this on these ballots again, any number of times into the future, based on that sto- that the story she wrote. Should she choose to continue writing science fiction? Have
1: I mean, she has got a serious academic career ahead of her for the next few years in graduate school. I realize that, <clears throat> but the, I mean, and, and that story is an astonishing debut story. Mm. But nevertheless, I expect to see another 50 years of science. Actually, I don't expect to see another 50 years of science fiction. <laughs> but somebody will.
0: You made yes. me feel a little bit tired there, for, Gary. 50 more years of this stuff, really? But no, I don't think either of you shall see that. No, no she here's will. the thing. She
1: will. When somebody, when somebody writes a story at the beginning of their career as unique and as unusual as the cartographer wasps and the anarchist bees, the thing that tells me about that writer's
0: career is that you have no idea what's coming next. True.
1: I wouldn't. You know she's not going to do that again because you can't do
0: anything like that again. Yeah, I would not be surprised to see her in the pages of The New Yorker, Gary.
1: It's interesting. One of the writers, uh, not to get off this, we can come back to this later, but I've just finished reading the collected short fiction, almost the entire collected short fiction, more than half of it, two-thirds of it, of Jonathan Carroll. Oh, who oh is. yes. Uh, who has more or less, in the last few years, uh, moves from genre publications he's published an occasional story in fnsf and that sort of thing but he's appeared it turns out apparently more often than any other single periodical in conjunctions mm. bradford morrow's literary magazine and one of the things that struck me about uh, carol who has always been uncomfortable being called a fantasy writer um, or being called a horror writer which he was at the beginning of his career he won a stoker award i think for his first story collection he won um Hey, I he he got reviewed. He got nominated for uh something. The Land of Laughs was oh I know what it was. The Land of Laughs was in uh Stephen Jones and Kim Newman's one hundred best horror books. Mm-hmm. So here's a writer who at the beginning of his career wrote a couple of things that looked enough like horror that he could get uh nominated for awards, could get awards and so forth and so on. He's not a horror writer, he's not a fantasy writer. Uh The way Bradford Morrow has reconfigured conjunctions to include this kind of literary, non-realistic fiction, whatever you want to call it, is the kind of career I could see somebody like Lily Yu having. Sure. Um, It's the kind of career I could see and can see Kelly Link having. Kelly's actually uh, one of the few writers who manages to publish significantly within the genre and within some sort of semi-mainstream venues as well. The whole point of that being that writers that fascinate me are writers that I have no idea what the next novel is going to be
0: like. Exactly.
1: Like like, 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 like
0: Graham Joyce, another friend of ours.
1: Graham Joyce is another one. Yeah. I mean, Graham Joyce, you know it's going to be some...
0: And Graham Joyce,
1: interestingly enough, is another writer who began his career being more or less received and reviewed as a horror writer. That's true. That's true. I mean, Tooth Fairy and that sort of thing. Yes. These me. are writers who don't... Here's it, it, an interesting question. When you've got a writer who is not sitting comfortably in any, in any genre uh, is is this sort of broad-based thing we call literary horror kind of a default place to put them because they're not writing genre fantasy. They they're certainly not writing science fiction. There are scary things in what they write. So let's dump them into horror for the time being and, and until they settle somewhere else.
0: I, I don't know. I mean, I think that someone like Graham Joyce, for example, is that, has, has involved genre enough, engaged with genre enough in what he writes – that he has real connections to the field. Uh, I, I, think think the, I think the carol links are more tenuous, and I would say that it's a characteristic of horror. Horror is both a genre and it's a mode or a theme or a flavor or whatever you want to call it. So you can have stuff that's not really about horror that is horror, you know, and so you can bring in more literary work because it has that element of horror in it quite legitimately, but it's not, say, supernatural horror or whatever else.
1: I think that's true, and I, I think that goes back. And Horror has a long and <clears throat> distinguished lineage that goes back mm. to the gothic novel, goes back to Nathaniel Hawthorne. Sure, certainly sure, sure. So, so there are all kinds of people who write things that have horrific elements. them. I think uh, Brian Aldiss may not have been the first one to make the argument, but it's a very common argument yeah. these days, that horror, horror is a genre, but the genre has nothing or very little
0: to do... With the mode of writing that involves horror. Yeah. True. Can we segue back for a second? Because okay, get back to our I had a segue a minute ago because the novelette went to Jeff Ryman's What We Found, which I'm just delighted about. I love that. And yes. he's also a literary writer who, I mean, he really does engage directly with the field, but did have that horror kind of start a little bit as well. So that's I a common thing. And this also thinking about it was an interesting thing with the nebulas because we live in a cutting edge 21st century society with a million different ways of delivering fiction to your world. But mm-hmm. all of the short fiction winners came from the digest, Gary. Uh,
1: that's interesting. FNSF had a very good year.
0: I'm uh, sure I, it has not. or at least the very best of FNSF was the very best of the year is what the nebulas are saying. Um, these stories, both you know, the two that you know, the the Lou and the Ryman stood out certainly, but when we got to the note novella in a second, that came from Asimov's. Mm-hmm. So I think that's a really I mean, really good thing. I mean, there's some great stories in the novella category. I love Charlie Jane Anders' story. I, I obviously loved Rachel Swirsky's story, which came from uh, my book. Mm-hmm. But delighted to see, to see Jeff win. Such a lovely, lovely guy. Every convention in the whole universe, he's the best guest you haven't had yet. Um, so yes. True. Before we get back to Jeff, and, and Jeff is somebody we – oh,
1: Jeff, you're going to be on this podcast sooner or later. Well, he's been on. Uh, before yeah. Before we leave the short story, though, yeah. we spent a lot of time talking about how remarkable Lily Yu's career is going to be. Yeah. Uh, but, but so is Ken oh, uh, yeah. who did win the short story. The Paper Menagerie is uh, a story that deals with cultural identity in a way that few fantastic stories do. I thought it was a lovely
0: story. I think it's a lovely story. And it, it showed up a, a – A chink in the critical armor, Gary, I think. Mm -hmm. I think there are uh, groups of critics who struggle with fiction that has an element of sentimentality in it. You know, um, the paper menagerie is quite a sentimental story.
1: Yes, it is. And I I think
0: there are those readers for whom that flavor of sentimentality would be seen as a taint and a weakness and it would undercut the value of the story now i understand that when you get a really cloying sense of sentimentality to something or the only structural motivation to a story is that sentimentality then that might be a weakness but i don't think that happens with the story and i think the story whilst there were several other stories on the ballot that were very very good um, and what also have made worthy winners. It's a very good story. I think people will be reading it in ten years' time.
1: Uh, I think so, and I think what you say about sentimentality is something I agree with as well. It's a um, if if a writer knows what she or he is doing, sentimentality is uh, an instrument. It's, it's it's part of the arsenal you can use. As hmm. a benefit, it's part of the arsenal that, that Connie Willis uses with some frequency, but with discretion. Hmm. Uh, I I agree that a story which is completely um, I don't know. Uh, I'm assuming what Nicholas Sparks novels are like, never having read one. Yeah. If, if something is conceived and executed in the notion, I'm going to get the readers with this. That's manipulative. That's <laughs> manipulative yeah. in the same way that a certain kind of splatter horror is manipulative. Sure, sure. I can. I know I can gross people out. I know I can make people cry. I don't think that's all that goes on in no. and Ken Luther. I think there's a lot of, especially the whole Chinese-American business and the whole idea of trying to come to terms with your heritage is a very important theme in that story. And I, As we've said before, the idea of dealing with, with different cultures, with multicultural sensibilities in science fiction and fantasy, and this is actually a fantasy story, uh, needs to be celebrated.
0: Yeah. I'll, I'll tell you this as well. If I were a small press publisher today, Gary, if I were running the Cood Street Press instead of letting it sit quiescent, I would have had a contract on Mr. Liu's desk a year ago for his first short story collection. Mm-hmm. I think come a year or two from now when it should come out, and I don't really think it should come out before then, it will be one of the... Well, it has the potential to be one of those landmarks for short story collections. Like Balutha Hatchie, like Fantasy Writers' Assistant. So, yes. Now, mm-hmm. moving on to another really strong category, and mm-hmm. one which featured Ken Liu again, novella, and mm-hmm. up against frankly, spectacularly good stories like Silently and Very Fast by Catherine Valenti, like The Man Who Ended History by Ken Liu, like The Ice Out by Carol and Ives Gilman. Mm -hmm. Kids Johnson, who wrote one of my very favourite stories of the whole year, The Man Who Bridged the Mist, got the award, and I am, I was just so pleased. I was being dragged out the door by my girls to go swimming, just as they announced that that, that result. And Mm -hmm. I am delighted that she won. I think it's a terrific story and a really worthy winner.
1: Uh, she's having a terrific uh, second career, really. Uh, mm. I mean, because the first time I had any encounter with kids' work was when we gave her the um, Crawford Award mm-hmm. uh, many years ago for the Foxwoman, I believe. Yes, Foxwoman. And, uh, yeah. and since, she, since then, she's gone on to write things like Spar. She's gone on to write things like story kit, that very strange thing she did for you.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And now... With the man who bridged the mist, I'm fascinated with a critical reaction to this, including my own, in that (laughs) it's it's sort of split between is this a fantasy world or a science fiction world? And it doesn't matter. Exactly my point. Um, I mean, one of the interesting things about Jeff Ryman's story, to get back to novel Ed* for a second, is that in my mind, that's clearly a science fiction story, and it deals with – it's a story about science in a way we rarely see now. Kitch's story is one that takes place in a world where
0: you know if if you want to approach that as a science fiction story, you can fill in the blanks. That's true. Uh, and I'd also say, I mean, you you know, you rightly talk about her turning her career around, or at least coming into a second career would be a better way, because her career was well, not need turning around. But certainly, and if you look just at the awards ballots, she's on the 2008, 2009, 2010, 2011, and now 2012. Uh, so. Nebula Ballots. Uh Uh-huh. She's on the 2008, 2009, 2011 uh, World Fantasy Ballots. She's on the 2009, 2010, 2011, and 2012 Hugo Ballots. She wow. won- uh, oh yeah and you know so I mean she's really slugging across the, the whole field and of course this is her third consecutive year to win the Nebula having won for um, the cat who walked a thousand miles in 2010 and for um, ponies in 2011. Oh ponies okay and that and could easily have won for something else but won won for both of those so sort so of here h- here we are in 2012 and she wins for the man who bridged the mist so. And, and the this other thing, yes, to go, back to, yep. to go back to the point I was making earlier about Lily Yu,
1: that's that's interesting about Kidge's career, because Kidge began looking like a very good uh, fantasy writer, but one more or less within recognizable fantasy traditions, and now she's all over the map. I mean, there are things like Spar, there are things like The who Walked a Thousand Miles, there are things that are clearly folkloristic fantasy, things yes. that are clearly erotic science fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, she's she's somebody who has become unpredictable, and becoming unpredictable Probably is both a good and a bad thing. In terms of short fiction, it's probably a very good thing because you're going to get on awards ballots all the time. From the point of view of publishers, it's like, what on earth is this person going to do next? Absolutely. Is safe?
0: Absolutely. And I think that sort of segues absolutely uh, neatly into the fact that we're waiting now for – and I think we're only about three months away from – at the mouth mm-hmm. of the River of Bees, her second major short story collection. Yes. Which – Which I <laughs> – have a copy of it in
1: front of me. In fact,
0: see everybody hates you now.
1: I know it's an August 2012 book coming from Small Beer Press. Everybody should look at it. It has a giant B on the cover of the arc at least, and it's got some stories in it I've not read before, which is going to be terrific.
0: Yeah. So yes, so that that's something, and hopefully, I think we've we've sort of said quietly off the list that we might try to talk to kids about the book a little bit closer to it coming out, which would be fun. Oh, we will definitely do that. Okay. Then. Back to. The novel. I got to tell you. We were walking into the swimming pool complex, Gary. We were buying tickets and I had, I made Marianne pull out her iPhone and look up the results. So I knew what won. And when I heard that, uh, among others, in fact, once we walked out the the door, I said, I'll be, if, 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 among others, by Joe Walton wins the nebula, I will be so delighted. Uh, I'll feel like everything I could w- want to have happened with the Nebulus had happened. So when she told me, I thought she was teasing me. I'm just delighted. There were some other fine books on the, on the list, but I'm just delighted that among others won.
1: I am, and probably for the same reason you are. And and um, for, and we, we've talked to Joe about the novel and about her reading in science fiction. I should mention also that um, I I, I loved um Nora Jemison's novel. Oh yes, yes. We've got a couple of first novels here. We Hurley's God's War and uh, Genevieve Valentine's Mechanique, which won the Crawford Award this year. Yes. And then uh, Firebird by Jack McDevitt, which I've not read, but Jack McDevitt is a classic, competent science fiction writer. Ooh. He's somebody of, of uh,
0: he's he's the uh, he's the traditional candidate in this field. I guess. I mean, I've read and num- I read and enjoyed a number of his books early uh, some years ago, and mm-hmm. I only hear good things about them these days. So
1: a, a strong a-
0: ballot. Yeah, strong Ballot, Embassy Town, which I
1: think everybody I had talked to was predicting because it becomes a kind of uh, reaction to see China Me name on a ballot. It's an excellent novel. There's no doubt about that. Mm-hmm. Here's my question. Yep. Uh, does the Nebula ballot reflect the votes of writers more than of readers compared to the Hugo ballot these days?
0: I, oh, well, I, mean, I uh, more than readers. That's interesting. I don't know the answer to that. I would well, have thought the answer is don't. Well, actually, I, I the, the challenging part of that question, Gary, is this. I mean, obviously, it reflects the view of writers because they're who voted. But, oh, yes. But the, the real question is, does to what extent does the Hugo voting audience or voting group reflect the broader reading community? Which one reflects it more? I don't know. Um I think they 're both strong ballots in you know in some areas this is a stronger ballot than the, than this year 's Hugo, in other words, in other areas that i I prefer it and obviously there 's a couple of books that for example, among others, in NBC town will both be up against um uh, uh the uh oh, what 's his name you know the guy martin be up against martin for his oh, um, well, be well
1: yeah. against dance was very good job.
0: Which would not be an easy task, I would well, think. It's, that. it's not an easy thing. And well, here, here, the reason for the question is partly this: yep.
1: there was a complaint. There were several complaints among professional, among I will say this, middle-aged plus. How about that? Middle-aged plus professional writers that uh, the SFWA's membership rules uh, have become liberalized to the point where the Nebula voting membership is not that significantly different from the Fanish voting membership, the fan voting membership of, of the Hugo award. Um, and the reason I'm asking that question is it strikes me that in many ways, among others, which is a novel I loved is a writer's novel. Mm -hmm. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a novel for people who love science fiction. I mean, I don't think it won. I know people are going to be complaining by tomorrow morning, uh, that, well, look, we're getting a lot of fantasy stories winning these nebula awards. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think, among others, won because it's a fantasy novel. I think it won because it's a love letter to science fiction and fantasy.
0: Yes. I I think that's exactly true. And the real question actually is, is it secretly a very old – is it secretly the kind of book that appeals to old fandom? Yes and no. I mean, the thing that that struck me
1: about that novel, which we have praised more often than most novels on this, is that it – it does appeal to old fandom in that sense, but at the same time, if you read it as a mainstream novel, as a young Welsh girl out of her out of place in an English boarding school, it works as a mainstream novel. If you deal with the narrator's uh, uh, the protagonist's relationship with her mother, it works as a fantasy novel. If you but but the fact is that what she says about encountering science fiction in the 70s and 80s uh, is so utterly true to anybody who did that or anybody yes. who read the book talks yes. about that I think that uh, that must appeal to a readership that recognizes that sense of discovery she talks about.
0: Yeah, yeah. I think you're I mean, right. I think, uh,
1: it, it, to some extent, there, there, there's a, you know, the other novel, if you're going to talk about novels that probably appeal to a sense of sentimentality or a sense of uh, history or a sense of what it's like to grow up in discovering science fiction,
0: I would think McDevitt would have been a much stronger candidate
1: in, in well, some ways. Well,
0: you might be right. But then you, what you begin to do is you start trying to parse the demographics of oh, a yeah. small professional organization, you know, uh, and that that's always difficult. Uh, I will say, it's, I mean, it's interesting that there is overlap. I mean, obviously, if you look at the difference between the Hugos and the Nebulas, you've got, you know, I mean, among others, an Embassy town are both up. Um, mm-hmm. The Isle*, Kiss Me Twice, The Man Who Bridged the Mist, The Man... In fact, the novella bat ballot is almost the same. Um, there's a couple of changes, but The Man Who Bridged the Mist, The Isle*, yeah. Kiss Me Twice, The Man Who <laughs> Ended History, *Silent is Very Fast, are bo- both all on the Nebula ballot. Um I think yeah, there's a lot of overlap between
1: Nebula and Hugo ballots this year in the short fiction. Categories. You
0: bet. I mean, in fact, in fact, uh, the Charlie Anders, the Ryman, uh, and is that, and I believe the Swirsky novelettes are all are both up in the same categories. Uh, and for short story, the Fulda, the Lou, uh, and the You mm-hmm. are were, were in both sets of awards. That's a lot of overlap. So I don't know how it's all syncing up. I think it's interesting. It's going to be interesting to see how the popular vote comes in. I mean, obviously some of those things that aren't up for the, the Nebula will swing heavily in a popular vote and by that i mean well dance with dragons has an enormous audience behind it so that may well have a great impact um but in the other categories gee it's going to be interesting gary it's going to be it's very to be really interesting. interesting and you're going to be there
1: i well it's going to be here in chicago isn't it yes i will be there
0: <laughs> yes it's going to be there in chicago gary it's going to be a mile
1: away from me absolutely
0: i'll be uh, here there- in Perth, so you'll be recording podcasts with people for us yes
1: Oh, we'll have all kinds of people on the podcast. Who yeah, you know, we'll talk to anybody who'll sit still.
0: Would you be my acceptor at the awards, Gary? Thank you. This is a this is a
1: historic moment on the Coot Street Podcast, ladies and gentlemen. I have just been asked by Jonathan Strong to accept if he wins the award as editor or uh, or for that's all there is, isn't there?
0: Is well there no, I'm up, well, we're up together, so you'd have to accept for yourself. We're up so together. I'd find yeah. yeah. somebody else to accept for me for the fan cast if we won in were we to be honored. So, yes. Okay.
1: Um, Well, thank you uh, for asking me. I guess one of the things I'm thinking also, I'm I'm looking at some of the, um, Mm -hmm. I'm just sort of randomly glancing at the novella category, and uh, one um, consensus, one of the consensus best novellas of the year is Carolyn Ives-Gilman's The Ice Owl. And I think what we need to recommend to our listeners is that, I hope nobody is simply looking at the winners of these various awards as yes. the reason for the next few months, because the nominees ought to be, uh, ought, ought to consist of you reading. this. I thought the Ice Owl was terrific. And the Ice Owl I think made it in two or three years, best anthologies uh, as well as getting a couple of nominations. It's a very excellent, uh, excellent novella. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, well, one of the things that um, always makes me a little self-conscious when I look yeah. at the winner of these things...
0: Yes. Well, yes,
1: I'm very glad to see Kids Johnson win, but I'm not glad to see the others not win. Does that make
0: sense? It does, exactly. In fact, I had that very exchange. I mean, the point for me, irrespective... Okay, whenever a ballot comes out, there's always something or some group of things that you think should have been off, that aren't there. That's inevitable. Exactly. And that's fine. You can't let that bother you though maybe if you were the nominee you might anyway but when it's when you look at it and you go not only am I delighted with the winner but I would have been delighted with one or two or three others in the same category Mm -hmm. and certainly on this ballot I mean without going into it I would have been there's at least one if not two or three other stories in each category where I would have been delighted to see them win you know I mean if Lily Yu had won the short story I would have been delighted if Rachel Swirsky or Charlie Anders had won the novella, novella, I would have been thrilled. If you know Caroline, Gil, Caroline Gil, 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 Gilman, Ken Liu, oh, or, or Catherine Valenti won, I would have been delighted. You know, and that's just to pick names at random. There are others in those categories and elsewhere. So, very good ballot, very good set of results, very good for the Nebulas, good for the field, interesting, you know, lead into both the the, um, the Locus Awards, which are coming up in June. Uh, and then the Hugos, which are coming up in August. And in some cases, probably be prefiguring some of the World Fantasy nominees, which will be announced in the next month, I guess. Mhm. So yeah, award stuff. Which yeah. reminds me,
1: we have, am I right, we have a, still a week or so left for the popular nominations for the World Fantasy Awards to be submitted. Yeah, I better do that.
0: I have to do that too, I haven't done it either.
1: One of the things people frequently forget about the World Fantasy Awards is that some of the nominees come from the general vote and some of them come from the judges. The judges make the final decision, but the ballot is partly determined by those of us who are not judges.
0: So what are you going to nominate, Gary? I haven't even looked yet. <laughs> uh, maybe the man who bridged the mist. How does that sound? <laughs> well, and among others, yeah, it, it does very well, that particular one. <laughs> Yeah. Actually, I oh, will nominate among others. I would be oh, I cool. would totally nominate among others. I'll, 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 what I'll about well. a, maybe a Carter Witch? I really like it. Um, and there's, Anyway, without, we are really going beyond rambling. And we have show notes. How could it be that we have show notes and we're this Where rambling? We Gary, last fact. week, item two, Nebula Awards, we're done. Last week, Gary, there may have been some foot and mouth syndrome, Gary, in episode 101 of the YouTube podcast. Do I should tell you, I used to live at one, my street number when I was growing up was 101. But anyway, uh, the question of rigorous science fiction and the Campbell Award came up. Oh. And you could listen to what we say, said and consider that possibly we were implying that women couldn't write rigorous science fiction.
1: If we implied that, we were being dumb. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So I think it's uh, just as a little precursor before we move on to the next little bit, because this isn't like a big part of what we want to talk about, Uh, I just wanted to say if we didn't stomp on on ourselves hard enough during the podcast, let us retrospectively stomp on ourselves (laughs) and make it very clear that that never was or never would be what we're looking to say or imply or believe.
1: Okay, let me see if I'm right about this, because as I recall, the question was raised by you, which means it's entirely your fault. (laughs) <laughs> as, women, as to whether women are sometimes perceived as not being hard science fiction writers no, or as being
0: less. No, like, that's not it at all. That's no. not it? That question was actually raised very intelligently after the fact by our uh-huh. friend gentleman Morgan. The question that got raised in the podcast was, hey, how did these crazy guys who do the, the, uh, the Campbell Memorial Award come up with a ballot with 11 st- pieces on it? And only two of them are written by women. Does that really synchronise with our view of the science fiction field in 2011, 12? Right. And the segue that got us onto uh, t- treacherous ground, as I recall, was where um, we were sort of saying, "Well, hang on, but what's the you know the, the Campbell Memorial Awards for like hard science fiction, and women are less likely to write hard science fiction." You see, that's the one. We
1: actually the, no. Okay, I, 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 I will confess at this point I don't listen to our podcasts no. right after we record them. I try okay. to catch up with them. Uh, did we say that, or did we say that women are less likely to get published as hard science fiction?
0: I don't know, and this does actually link in something interesting that we want to talk about. But I think it was perhaps, if not overtly there, it was it was implied. Uh, and I'd have to go have to go back and listen to it to be sure. And honestly, I'd rather just apologize <laughs> than do that. But... Um, I think it could have been implied. Uh, I think what the real problem with it was is I think we were, as will happen with us because we ramble, we were going down a logical train of thought and we hit a little bump and went off somewhere else rather than continuing the train of thought. And that's why we didn't get the stomp on ourselves fully at the time because we went off somewhere else rather than continuing talking about that particular subject.
1: Let's stomp on ourselves some now, then. Okay, okay. Uh, We we, we were not talking about Jonas Franziski or Linda Nagata or C.J.
0: No, no, no. And the other thing I'd say is that my recollection afterwards, because I was talking about it online, is that the kind of science fiction we're really talking about that not many women write because not many people write it at all, is that particularly Asperger-ish kind of hard science fiction that Olaf Stapleton and Greg Egan write, right? Have we created a new
1: category here, Asperg- Asperger-ish hard science fiction?
0: I don't think we want to start up ASF, Gary, no.
1: Well, okay.
0: <laughs> um. But but you know what I mean? That kind of cold, intellectual, not very emotional kind of stuff. I it's, think... It's a, okay, go ahead. And you see, I actually... Because when it comes down to this whole question, like, what is hard science fiction, which does roll in here and is interesting, this is one of those things. Because there's, a, there's the conflict between what I think actually is hard science fiction and what feels like hard science fiction. Now, that really Asperger-ish kind of cold, unemotional sense of wonder, hard SF, or it is a, a cold kind of fiction, I guess, uh, wow. that to me feels the most like hard science fiction. But I've had the, this discussion slash argument with our colleague Tansy Randall roberts over on the Galactic Suburbia about whether... Last Moment Master Bujold's Miles for Cossigan books are hard science fiction.
1: Uh.
0: And I don't recall, honestly, because I'm getting forgetful in my old age, whether we ever agreed. But certainly the position I came to was, I think what Bujold does is write adventure stories against a hard SF background rather than writing hard SF stories. I think correctual... Um, background engages a lot of hard SF stuff, has a lot of rigorous hard SF work done in it, and, and she certainly writes rigorous science fiction, and to some degree, and certainly in, in the background of her story is rigorous hard SF, but it's not about that the sf no sense of wonder stuff, it's about the other stuff, you see, and this question is like, does that make for hard SF, or does that make for SF?
1: Well, I hear you okay, let me get myself even deeper into doo-doo than I apparently was last week. Yeah. Uh, the universe strikes me as being something which is meticulously worked out, yes. um, mm-hmm. rigorously treated. Uh, the the problems that she sets up are, are very logical, tactical, uh, strategic problems. It's a universe which is not unlike that of somebody, let's say, Gordon R. Dixon. And mm-hmm. uh, the last encyclopedia, uh, in, in his whole series of um, Dorsai stories, it's the same thing. It, it created a universe that was very... Uh, very clearly determined what the rules of this universe were. Uh, Larry Niven did this with the Known Space series. It's it's a tradition in hard science fiction to create a hard science fiction universe and then write adventure stories within that universe. Sure,
0: sure. There's
1: nothing wrong with that at all. No. I mean, nothing, nothing wrong with that any more than uh, Anthony Hope creating a kind of middle European kingdom and saying, okay, we're going to write um, you know the Prisoner of Zenda here. And to some extent, you could say Heinlein did the same thing. That is a long and noble tradition in hard science fiction. And I suspect that Bujold and Cherry are probably the two, let me think, am I right? The two women who have most successfully exploited that tradition of hard science fiction.
0: Probably so. And I'll now just briefly wander out on a limb and say, for the next 10 years, Bujold and Cherry don't get made grandmasters of SFWA. Someone should get shot in the foot, Gary.
1: That will rather astonish me if that doesn't happen. Yeah. Um, part, partly because the one thing that's consistent about the two of them is that they write science fiction. They have not been tempted to move into fantasy. That's not true. That's,
0: that's not true. <clears throat> what are you talking about? What do you mean? What are you talking about? Gary K. Wolf? I thought you were paying attention to the field. Uh, both C.J. Cherry and uh, Bujold have written fantasy. Okay. And really they've like written straight, straight fantasy. I mean, there's the the Paladin of Souls, Curse of Chalion books that Bujold wrote. Cherry's written lots of, of, Cher- yeah. of fantasies. She wrote a big fantasy quartet for HarperCollins. She wrote it's a Russian cool. fantasy series. Uh, she was up for the World Fantasy Award for, for it. Gary?
1: This is one of the reasons we need to correct ourselves in the podcast. Thank you for that. <laughs> By correction is that what they did not do was what Anne McCaffrey did which was to move her science fiction series into the affective realm of fantasy. That's true.
0: Yeah, that's the true. First.
1: They've kept those two things separate. Um, yes. Which is, which is not the same thing as segueing your science fiction universe into a fantasy universe. That's true. Uh, most of the people who read uh, Anne McCaffrey these days think of the Pern novels as fantasy novels, and they're not. She fought that to the end of her
0: life. Yeah. Oh, I know. Well, sometime we're going to have to sit down. I don't think you... We're going to have to bring Russell on this podcast, Gary. We should, yes. Rus- Russell Letson. And we're going to talk CJ Cherry. Because I don't know how much CJ Cherry you've read, Gary. No. C- not a lot of I've recently. Read. I've read 30 novels, maybe. Okay, you're good. Going... Uh, okay. I haven't read many of the more recent... Oh, well, not many of them. I didn't read the Fortress series and one or two others more recent ones. But no. I've read quite a bit. So it would be interesting to get, get him in and talk about it because he, he's... Deeply immersed in, in, in CJ Cherry's work. So that'd be interesting. Um, but I, I would even begin a little campaign. And probably the, the start of the campaign is to renew my SIFWA membership, which John Scalzi would no doubt remind me of. Um, not that I'm allowed to vote, so it doesn't really matter. But I think Cherry should get become a Grandmaster. Not one of these solstice things. Uh, I think it would be, you know, she's a won the Hugo for two major novels and for short fiction. She really, really deserves it. Now it might be in ten years or five years, whatever, but it should happen. Sorry. Now, I
1: think you. Right. I, I agree.
0: Given that, with- yeah. given that Yeah. Given that this is just the apology part of our podcast, and we're uh-huh. nearly nearly through our hour, and we've got three other items on our, our, our show notes which we're not going to get to really. Let's be honest. We could at least touch on one other, and it's not the one that you mentioned. And I'll tell you the two to, uh-huh. to listeners that. Probably the other two things which we may get to is whether, well, how many women in science fiction have created or instigated or been instrumental in the foundation founding of new movements? This is something you mentioned offline, Gary. Uh, and there are uh, there are some There's stuff to talk about. For that, let me explain it. Okay. Yeah. Well, anyway, well, we don't, but that, that's a future topic. Just like the new Terry Pratchett book is a new new topic. But I did want to touch on what um, Cheryl had asked us to touch on, which is. When you look at a work of fiction and you're trying to assign genre to it, because that's something we do, to to what extent are we influenced by the the gender of the writer involved? Do we look at a book and say, because it's written by a woman, it's it's less likely to really be science fiction? And because it's written by a man, it's more likely to be really science fiction for whatever nonsensical value of really you want to apply let me recast the question. Is that your <laughs> question? Okay. Well, no, no, I'm, I'm paraphrasing her question, but something like that. I'm going to re- and I'm, I'm going to. Re- okay, I'm
1: going to take the liberty of recasting that question. Is are we more likely to think of a book as only science fiction? Um, and, and and the reason for that is this. Uh, the reason for that is a book which you can look at pretty much as only science fiction. In my mind, is an Arthur C. Clarke novel. Okay. And possibly some early Stephen Baxter novels. Uh, Less so with Heinlein, but something in which the scientific idea, uh, the, the, the speculative idea is is pretty much what powers the novel. The mm-hmm. two writers who come to mind when I think of that question, and the question I can throw back at you in regarding these two writers is, do you regard Linda Nagata and Kathleen Ann Goonan as hard SF writers? Yes, I do. I do too. Uh, and yet, when we're reading, uh, and, and Kathleen Goonan just finished two novels in, this, in the same series and as i've said many times on this podcast one of the most um i think under recognized current science fiction writers they they follow all the rules of hard science fiction they deal with alternate histories and they deal with quantum mechanics and they deal with what and if you go back to her uh, uh queen city jazz series they deal with nanotechnology yep they deal but but they also deal with massively informed and interesting uh, information about American cultural history about jazz, about comics, about uh, popular culture, about Mark Twain, all all that sort of thing informs it. So, to some extent, I think what happens with Cassie in in Kathleen Ann Gunn's case is that, yes, there's a hard science fiction core to everything she writes, but she doesn't want to limit it to that. She's not satisfied with clever ideas being enough to go on. Uh, Lyndon Nagata is the same way, uh, although she's. been less visible in, in, in recent years. Um, I yeah. think... Uh, in other words, I think the answer to the question is obviously women write hard science fiction. There are very few women who write hard science
0: fiction in the really, relatively narrowly focused way that some men write hard. Okay, science. but you, you, I, and, and I agree with I guess I, I guess I agree with you. But I am intrigued by this question. If Pern was written by r- Robert... T. Davison rather than Anne McCaffrey, would we be happier calling it science fiction?
1: I think that probably would have been received that way, to be honest. I think that the general uh, sense of readership would have been that, uh, uh, well, this is a science fiction writer because it's a guy. I think there's, a, there's an absolute bias out there among readers. So and maybe you are sharing that bias. So, so
0: then, so then is, is one of the reasons that when we look at the field and say women write more science fiction than fantasy because we're wearing testosterone-coloured glasses...
1: I'm not even going to try to parse that metaphor.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You know what I mean, though. Are are we looking at through whatever? A
1: filter.
0: I'm going back to Kathy Goonan
1: again. I know her. She's a friend. Uh, She's written lots of really brilliant essays on science and the relationship between science and fiction. There's been rigorous uh, scientific underpinnings to everything she's written. Sure. And yet I don't think of her as only a hard science fiction writer and i guess i guess what we're getting at is not whether women aren't hard science fiction writers but the question of whether the women writers that we know and like or at least the ones i know and like are satisfied with just being hard science fiction writers when i go back to larry niven's hard uh, known space short stories not necessarily the novels but the short stories especially mm. um, and if i go back to i don't know um some of Clark's short stories, some of Murray Leinster's short stories. The idea is all you need for the story.
0: Yeah. And I'm not
1: concerned, I'm not convinced that contemporary writers, male or female, are satisfied with that. I think there's a sense now that you have to have a human element in the story. Now, I'm not not saying this to defend women against the idea of hard science fiction. I think to some extent, uh, early hard science fiction by women, including Judy Merrill's that only a mother, which is a problematical story in all kinds of ways, um, is, it it clearly is classified as hard science fiction, uh, in the sense that the early 50s thought, you know, radioactive mutations could could occur. It's a very sentimental, very manipulative story in other ways. Um, In other words, I think that that was a story that was too convenient uh, for that writer to work with. Yeah. I think that when when Lee Brackett wanted to work with hard science fiction, she could do it very very well. I'm trying to go back to the history of the field. Sure, sure, sure. Um, see, and I think that Le Guin's science fiction is as hard science fiction is as well worked out as anybody I know. But
0: see, here, here's the thing. I mean, I, I okay, I, I, I take your point that many writers, many of whom are women, actually uh, either look to blend genre or they look beyond genre or they add. A element to hard science fiction and that makes it a better a more interesting thing but which is also more than just the stri- the straight basics of it but that dances around this question and I don't know if you just you don't have a clear feeling for it or you don't really want to discuss it or whatever it is or it's just not easy to answer and I think that's the real truth of it but well, um, there is, Go ahead. What, what, what is this question the, the question is when critics, when readers and critics look at a book and it's got a woman's name on it and it's a science fiction book, are they more, well, a genre book, are they more willing to see it as fantasy than science fiction? When you go in the direction of
1: fantasy, that, that complicates the issue quite a bit. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm again reaching back into history a little bit. Sure. It seems to me that um, when some of us of my generation began reading science fiction, One of the people we thought of as a hard science fiction writer certainly was Andre Norton. Sure. Uh, And then Andre Norton eventually became well-known to a later generation of readers for the Witch World novels. Yeah. The Witch World novels, as I recall, could have been read as science fiction, but maybe not. Yeah. So I I think, I I, I don't know where I'm going with that, but I think part of this has to do a lot more with the way people read novels than with the way people write them.
0: Possibly. Possibly. Or how they receive them, whatever else it, it, it is. Yeah. I mean, Ursula has clearly
1: made a distinction between fantasy and science fiction in her sure. career. Sure.
0: Yes, she has. But, um, okay, let me ask you this, to interrupt rudely again. Um, if, among others, was written by John Walton, would we consider it more likely to be science fiction? No. Okay. Well, fair enough. That's- I mean,
1: basically, there's supernatural stuff that happens. Well, yeah,
0: but I mean, it, this, is, this is one of those books which also sits... For, I mean, it's a fantasy novel, but there's science fictional elements in it. Or, or The Man Who bridged, bridged the Mist, right? There's a story where science fiction or fantasy? By Kids Johnson, is it indeterminate? By Kevin Johnson, is it science fiction? Or does it well, remain I mean, indeterminate? I,
1: I, I don't think we have any problem with the indeterminate label these days. I mean... Well, no, this, no, but, question- I mean
0: this is this question. This is really... The heart of what mm-hmm. Cheryl's trying to get at is: Do we have a subconscious filter that says whatever has been written by a woman is less likely to actually be science fiction?
1: Well, another way of asking the question is: What if the James Tiptree Jr. stories had been published as Alice Sheldon? Sure. Or, or the but but some of them were published as Racuna Sheldon, a yeah, sure, sure. female name. And I don't think I don't think anybody thought that screwflies. If the screw-fly solution was anything other than science fiction.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, I, I, yeah. I, it's, it's an interesting question, but I'm not sure how to approach it, I guess. Yeah, I'm not Identified. sure I know the exact answer either. I, I think there's probably an element of it. I do think there's an element of it. Uh, how strong it is, I need to think on more. But I can think of instances where um, books which are or stories that are written by women have been more likely to be judged to be fantasy or closer to fantasy, just because they're written by women, I think. But I need to think about it more. I think it's a really provocative question that Cheryl raised on her blog and in Twitter. I don't think it's a new question, but I think it's a provocative one, and one to revisit it sometime in the future, maybe.
1: We should ask our listeners to, to, to chime in on this, because it's a question that fascinates me. And the only way you can answer a question like that is in terms of your own reading. How do yes. you receive these things? Exactly. Um, and to be honest, when I was reading C.J. Cherry way back at the beginning, I had no awareness of whether that was a male or female name.
0: Well, 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 well no, that's true. And I, how would you have felt about The Pride of Channer or um, The Chronicles of Morgaine if it was written by Carolyn Cherry? I,
1: it's, it's impossible for me and, to And
0: we, remember, we live in a world – I'm wagging my finger at the microphone, Gary. It's ridiculous. Uh, uh, wow. uh, we live in a world where Gwyneth Jones – a preeminent science fiction writer and one of the best in our field, has said she wished she'd never uh, let people know she was a woman as a writer, I think it was, or something to that effect. Um, and that, she, that she, it would have been better if she'd uh, you know, sort of been um, described as being G.J. Jones or something. You know? Which well, is it's it's a terribly sad thing. I mean, I have to go back and find the exact words. No but something to that by, effect.
1: by the same token, we're no, I hope we're no longer living in the world, in which Ursula Le Guin... Has to publish a story in Playboy under the initials U.K. Le Guin, so they won't find yeah. out the paper. Yeah. Uh, I, I think we're past that. I mean, we've had you know we had Alice Turner working on Playboy for that uh, period of time. I, there's there's no doubt, and I've I've, I've read an interview with uh, I've read interviews with Lee Brackett, who said her career, uh, not only her science fiction career but her Hollywood career, was very much uh, advanced by the fact that people didn't know whether Lee was a male or female name. Yeah. The history of the field is full of people like that. Uh, yeah. I can, you go back to, I can, I can tell you, probably when it began within the genre was a writer named Frances Stevens, yeah. who wrote The Citadel of Fear, who was a very significant early woman horror writer. And people weren't quite sure of the spelling of Frances back in 1920 or whatever it was. <laughs> but you got away with it. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's, 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 it's a very interesting question. It's a question which is not related to science fiction. It's a question that. Goes back, uh, to, yeah. goes back to back to why yeah. Mary uh, Elliot wanted to write as uh, you know Mary Ann Evans wanted to write as George Eliot or why um, uh, what was her real name? Um, mm.
0: Well you know what? We've hit our hour, Gary. We've hit our hour, we've
1: got ourselves in really deep crap here. We've got to <laughs> get before
0: we close. I don't no start. I know what to do, Gary. Whilst the opinions expressed in this in episode one hundred and two of the Coot Street podcast do represent the views of Gary K Wolfe and Jonathan Strand, they may not be fully formed or thought out views. And just in case, we'd like to say we're sorry.
1: I can also add to that that part of the opinions expressed in this podcast are involved with Rex Goliath, two thousand nine Pinot Noir, <laughs> which I've just uh. finished. It's only half a bottle
0: tonight. Maybe we'll go back and listen to this one so we can actually work out what we said. But these are things we're working our way through. It's interesting. It's an interesting.
1: Work your way through. I mean, Cheryl, tell us what we're doing wrong here.
0: Really? No. Yeah. Okay. Right. Anybody can. Anybody. anybody please anybody, jump on the. But, uh, if if you listened, if you, if you found us idiotic, then well, let us know. If you thought it was okay, let us know too. Um. Maybe we'll talk to. Maybe we'll talk to some of you out there. Either it, next week, when you, Gary, will be going to Wiscon, the, 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 the galactic suburbia of conventions.
1: It is, um, and it's full of delightful people, and it's a delightful hotel, and I'm looking forward to seeing some of our friends and again.
0: And then two weeks after that, I will be in Melbourne for Continuum 9, the Australian National Science Fiction Convention. Kelly Link will be there. As will Say be- hello I will say I haven't seen Kelly in years, so I'm looking forward to seeing her, as are any number of our dear friends, so that should be fun. Uh, and, well, you, of course, have – oh, damn, so much stuff. You've got the Locust Awards in front of you. You've got the um, the Hugos in front of you. I, w- I will be going – ReaderCon, we'll be going to ReaderCon. I, I, I envy you that one. Maybe I should just ditch Toronto and go to ReaderCon. Oh, we, we've got we've got to do stuff in Toronto. Yeah, okay. Okay, we'll do that. Okay, anyway, on that cheery note, we didn't get to, to – But I'd just like to say, good evening, Gary Wolf.
1: Uh, Good morning, Jonathan. And we'll just do a sentimental introduction to the podcast as though we were starting all over again now that we've actually gone to the Coot Street Motel 6. Whatever
0: whatever it is thing, yeah, I know. Whatever it is, okay. Ramble. Okay. All right. Bye. Good night, my friend.